This is the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oki. Happy New Year! Yes, it's already the end of January, but this is our first episode of 2019. We begin with my conversation with Holly Taylor Kuhlman, Assistant Professor of Theology at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island. In this episode, we talk about how the evangelical subculture she grew up in provided the grounding for her interest in theology, and how studying scripture drew her into questions about Jewish-Catholic dialogue. We also talk about the campaign she ran for a seat in the Rhode Island State House in 2018, and how Thomas Aquinas shaped her motivations to do so, and her reflections on being a Catholic in politics. We have a lot of great conversations coming up in 2019, including several already recorded that we'll be rolling out in the next few months. If you have theologians you'd like to hear us interview, send in suggestions, and we'll see what we can make happen. And if you'd like to support the podcast and make these interviews possible, head over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. So today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm talking with Holly Taylor Kuhlman of Providence College. Holly, thank you for being on the show. Sure. Thank you for the invite. I like to begin by asking, how is it that you came to study theology? What is it that drew you to the field? Yeah, it's a great question, and it probably uh, has a lot of possible answers. But I think at this point, looking back, interestingly enough, I would have to give a lot of credit to, or (laughs) I should at least just say attention to, the evangelical context Mm. in which I grew up. So I grew up, in a certain sense, I grew up at the evangelical moment of the um, late 70s and early 80s, evangelical movement in the U.S. really coming into its own at that time. Mm. And I think, for me, that is an overwhelmingly uh, positive memory. Mm. Uh, So what that meant was that I grew up in a, you know, what sociologists might call a thick subculture. I was involved in youth groups and service trips, and there were radio stations and books, and just a a rich world for me, certainly, as I was sort of beginning, back to your question about theology, as I was beginning to be really an adult thinker at 12 and 13 and 14, uh, there was a rich world for me to enter into. But then another aspect that I'd have to mention at least quickly is that my own experience there is really better described as a kind of intersection between that evangelical moment and the longer Reformed tradition. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a Presbyterian church, you know, commonly called one of the magisterial Protestant traditions, because there is, in fact, a a certain form of a recognized teaching office in Mm -hmm. that tradition. And so that added some other elements that I think began to train me in certain ways to think in terms of a coherent system of theology. Um, I'm one of the people who who doesn't necessarily take the word system to be a bad word. (laughs) And in fact, and in fact, I trace it back to that moment. So, so like, just to say a little bit more c- concretely, I grew up in a church where I was invited, encouraged to read the Westminster Confession. Mm-hmm. I think it's a beautiful expression of faith, and 
when I was 12 years old, I was invited to possibly become a member of the church, and that involved a conversation with the board of elders at the church. Uh, anyway, so just say there's some other things there, I think, that are not a part of every evangelical growing up. They were also pretty formative for me. So. And so you went to Wheaton for your undergraduate, is that right? I did. So part of that kind of growing up in a thick subculture meant that both my high school and my college uh, education were part of that world, in a sense. And there was some important continuity there for me with growing up. But it's certainly the case that Wheaton College opened up a, a whole new world to me and a much larger world. As it, you know, in a way, I think that a lot of us imagine is ideal for a liberal arts education, sure. actually. Yeah. And, and so even, I mean, within that, what do you, what do you think it was that, that drew you to theology specifically within that? I mean, from coming from an evangelical subculture, there's, you know, still a lot of directions that one might go in terms of, you know, topics, interests and whatnot. Was it, you know, was it sort of a pursuing, like deepening your own spirituality? Was it more of an intellectual question? Was it like, what was it that right. do you think attracted you? Right. Just to loop back from it, I think if I was going to summarize, I, I, I should have said this more explicitly, but in a sense, I think what that evangelical growing up experience did for me was to, especially to just convince me that these were really important matters, mm -hmm. really important questions, not certainly not one aspect of one's life or anything like that, mm -hmm. but were absolutely matters of ultimate importance and were, yeah, and were just rich and worthwhile. So mm -hmm. that's why I um, begin there. So I would say, you know, as I moved on to my college years, I was certainly always somebody who had loved ideas, loved words, loved books. College for me was a uh, incredibly wonderful opportunity to just dive right into that. And I think, I will say that I think you're right to say, to ask the question about how, you know, what what is the pathway from an evangelical growing up? Because to be fair, it is the case that when I began my study at Wheaton College in 1985, there was no department called theology. There is now a department mm -hmm. at Wheaton College called theology, but it wasn't even clear at that moment that there was a field of study that could be distinguished in any way from biblical study, from biblical okay. exegesis. So what I did it, uh, just to say concretely for a minute, what I did at Wheaton was to study English literature and also philosophy. And mm -hmm. I had the benefit, the privilege, in a way, of studying in a context where I was very free in both of those fields of study to ask some of these ultimate questions, and in many cases, uh, explicitly theological questions. Those were not ruled out for me. Mm -hmm. Looking at the history of philosophy, looking at exegeting a poem, and so on. As I came to the end of that study, uh, it became clearer and clearer to me that really my, the work that I was going to enjoy most, maybe even the work to which I was called, was work um, with ideas and with words and also with teaching. And so I really did give some thought to where where was it that I could ask the questions that were really driving me, that were really pushing me along. And, you know, in a sense, I made a very pragmatic decision. Um, I think I was probably right about this, but other people may have other thoughts about that. But I suspected that if I pursued graduate work, for example, in English, 
I might not find the same freedom to ask those questions hmm. in every department of English or uh, every mm-hmm. PhD program in English. But when I looked toward, you know, what I was already calling theology, it looked to me like you were more than welcome to include literature, for example, in that uh, mm-hmm. enterprise. So it just looked to me like theology looked to me like a spacious place to explore and, as I said, both to kind of think, write, talk, and then teach. With Really, at that point, it was pretty clear to me that teaching was also something that was an important part of my own hopes. So, did you, did you go on to graduate study right away? I absolutely did not go on to graduate study right away. In fact, <laughs> I, um, I say that I, I, I try to let people know this because I think sometimes there's a sense that you've got to hurry along. You're going to get behind, mm-hmm. you know? And I, yeah. in no way, did I hurry along. I did just the opposite. I really meandered through uh, <laughs> through the world of academic preparation. So I took off, I guess you could say. I don't really think of it that way. But um, I took two years between <laughs> my um, undergraduate and graduate work. And that was also partly just an opportunity for me to think more about what the next step should be. Mm-hmm. I would say also that I, I think it was a little bit of coming to the end of my college career and still having trouble imagining myself as a, um, certainly as a college professor. That just seemed like a, a lofty goal, and, I, and I, I just wasn't sure that I could see myself there. Looking back, I do think that was a little bit of a... Um, gender question, probably. Mm. Although I had some wonderful women professors at Wheaton, I should say that. But, you know, I just think that's part of the mix there. Mm-hmm. And what I did in those two years, as I said, teaching was pretty clear to me at that point. So I actually left Wheaton and began teaching um, in the Chicago area high school English. Mm. Before I left Wheaton, I had gotten, I had added to the other courses of study a uh, secondary certification to teach high school English. Okay. And that was also pretty importantly, importantly formative for me. I was teaching in a large public high school, which had many serious challenges for the students who were learning there. A significant percentage of our students were living under the poverty line. There was pretty mm-hmm. widespread gang activity and violence that they faced outside the classroom and at home. I was teaching in that school when the Rodney King verdict came down, and sure. so that was really quite an experience for me to you know, come into school the next day. Uh, it was also a majority of our students were students of color, so beginning for myself as a 22-year-old uh, high school teacher to begin to <laughs> you know, wrestle with some of the questions and wrestle through them with my students, to whom I felt mm-hmm. increasing you know, obligation, and really, I, I can say, whom I loved, you know. So I think that that really, I don't think it's an accident that I ended up in that school, but then I think it also shaped me further in this way. And I think this has followed me. I've said now a couple times I loved ideas, I love words, but it was also pretty clear to me from the beginning that I, I also need a pretty immediate connection to humans. I don't really, mm. I'm, not, I'm not super interested in ideas and words where I can't uh, make the connection to people, either students who are in front of me or practical elements of everyday human life. Um, and I think that has followed me. And, you know, I would just say in a broader sense, too, I, I those students are very much 
always present before me. Of course, those students were, in one case, I had a student who was exactly a year younger than I was <laughs> in that school. <laughs> uh, so, of course, those students are um, adults now, and but they just the seeing the reality of their lives feeling what it meant to be a teacher to them. As I said, in a lot of ways, I they, they loved me and I loved them. And, and they've just really stayed very present to me as I've gone on to do mm-hmm. teaching in the, in the world of theology. So. Okay. I know you eventually went on to Duke for your doctoral work. And somewhere along here, I, I know you became Catholic somewhere in the process. Right. So you've got several steps uh, there. <laughs> Okay. Um, but I'm sort of curious, especially coming out of, you know, the evangelical subculture, you know, what, you know, what promptings of the heart moved that and, and what right, that experience was like. Right. So two steps to add in there. I actually left that high school teaching job and went on to do master's work at Princeton Theological Seminary, which okay. was also in many ways a great, a great context for me, really opportunity to explore some big questions. I began there to read Karl Barth, who... I began sort of loving and disagreeing with the very first moment that I read him. I mean, he's just a genius, just a genius, and a certain kind of theological genius. But again, from the very beginning, I was sort of, um, you know, but that can be a great gift, you know, a, uh, mm-hmm. an incredibly able teacher with whom you find yourself disagreeing. So two things that were um, in place in my life by the time I was at, at Princeton Seminary the first is that actually before I began at Princeton, I was received into the Anglican Church, and that was a very intentional move mm. on my part. Interestingly enough, it was already at Wheaton that I was starting to move more and more into an appreciation of sacraments, an appreciation of liturgy, a pull toward a broader historical grounding for this rich uh, spiritual and intellectual experience that I had already. In fact, just to add a footnote to that, it it was also, interestingly enough, trying to think through a philosophy and a theology of art, which sounds kind of funny because I I don't really Hmm. think of myself as an artist, and I wasn't really an artist, but I really loved literature, and I really imagined literature Mm -hmm. as a kind of art. And... um, found myself asking some very practical questions. Why would somebody give their life to writing poems? How would somebody mm. imagine that exegeting poems could be a worthwhile endeavor? And I just found that I didn't have a, a philosophical or a theological framework that let me give an answer to that question. So I was reaching mm. outward. I was looking for some bigger possibilities. I mentioned gender briefly. At Wheaton College, I also began to be kind of exposed to and invited into reflection about gender, about larger questions of justice. Uh, Working with my high school students certainly only made clearer certain questions of justice. And so I was looking for a bigger world, and all of that had to do with my being confirmed in the Anglican Church. So at Princeton, I was very much living praying and living into that tradition. And again, I, I feel overwhelmingly positive about what it offered to me. As a, as a seminary student, so for, for example, while, while doing an MDiv, I was many, many days gathering with other people to pray both morning prayer and evening prayer. And I just think 
Hmm. Every person who's struggling through a master's degree in theology uh, should have something like that that, that grounds them <laughs> in the midst of that work and stress and so on. And then the other thing to say is that by the time I was leaving Princeton Seminary, I had begun reading Aquinas. Mm. I was really, that was really a pretty individual enterprise for me. We did not read a lot of Aquinas at Princeton Seminary at that time, mm. but a little bit, and I was just on my own, kind of diving into that world. In fact, I think in a funny way, I was perfectly positioned to appreciate yeah. Aquinas in this way. Unlike so many other people who are doing the work of Catholic theology today, I did not grow up in a situation where I was sort of just breathing the air of a kind of Thomistic uh, mm-hmm. worldview without even knowing it. Yeah. What I did was, first, you know, I spent a lot of years basically immersed in Scripture, There's the patterns mm-hmm. of Scripture and the categories of Scripture, et cetera, et cetera. And then I went and did a degree in philosophy, including, you know, at the undergraduate level, a kind of grasp of the broad sweep of philosophical history, some of the questions that are the perennial questions of philosophy, some of the specifically modern conundrums of philosophy. And then I read Aquinas. And I thought, this guy is a genius. Like, how does he? This is amazing. Because it, it was so obvious to me the complete immersion in Scripture that is also part of the Duma. Uh-huh. I could just see it everywhere, phrases, and I just saw it everywhere. But then I also saw, in a, in a certain sense, you know, some of the philosophical achievements that he was managing there. Again, and I also think I was never really tempted to imagine Aquinas as a kind of absolutely ultimate authority. So I didn't feel boxed in that way. Mm, sure. I thought, this guy is amazing. <laughs> we should be reading him more, this Thomas Aquinas guy. <laughs> um, Have you heard of him? <laughs> exactly. So I guess I could just say, I, I'll say, you know, I was, I was, maybe what I've said already will start to make sense of a move toward the Catholic Church. I was praying, you know, in a daily way, a liturgical way. I was falling in love with Thomas Aquinas. And also, I was living in a deeply ecclesial setting. So for me, both the idea of church and the experience of church was becoming more and more powerful for me. Mm -hmm. If I was going to say it very briefly, I would say that as an Anglo-Catholic, I began to live into a reality of church that was really fully supported by the theology and tradition and practice of Catholicism. Would it be fair to say for you, I know some, you know, some theologians I've spoken to often have this sort of, you know, internal struggle about the relationship of their spiritual life and their academic and intellectual life. And I know even with some of my undergraduates, you know, sometimes the the more academic study of theology is very challenging for them, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. It sounds like for you, the, the, the spiritual dimension of your life and the intellectual dimension of your life were really fruitfully entwined um, and, and were sort of positively supporting and feeding on one another. Would that be fair to say? I think that's right. I think where 
I felt some kind of a tension or even a challenge, it didn't have to do with the intellectual enterprise itself or even the academic enterprise itself. I think it had to do more with elements of certain academic settings that I don't think are necessarily Mm. there. Like, you know, the competitiveness that you sometimes see or some of the psychological challenges of being involved in a very, what is at its heart, a very solitary kind of work. So, right, I don't, I don't think so for me. Mm. Again, I, I really grew up in a context that, you know, loving the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind were imagined to be a part of a single project. So, mm. and that, that's how it made sense to me. Yeah, that's really helpful. So a further question I wanted to ask, and when I was you know, doing some of my preparation, this, this came up. I know a lot of your research interest has been in Christian-Jewish dialogue and Christian-Jewish relations, and I'm curious how that became a topic for you. And then also, by extension, I'm just thinking about, you know, especially recent events in the U.S., what insights you might have or offer for, you know, especially Catholics living today. Hmm. Well, there's a couple questions. <laughs> <laughs> Well, interestingly enough, my interest in matters of Jewish-Christian interaction, which actually began, I would say, much more specifically as a question, to say it a little bit woodenly, as a question inside Christian theology. Mm -hmm. What, What account is Christian theology, you know, per se, going to give about... So, for example, it began with me with exegesis, of the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. the Hebrew Scriptures. And questions like, do you call it the Old Testament, or do you call it the Hebrew Mm -hmm. Scriptures? And questions about what does it mean for Christians to see in those Scriptures the presence of Christ himself, the voice of Christ himself. Like, what what are we talking about? (laughs) how How does that work? Without wanting to just sidestep every modern question about history as mm-hmm. it begins to be thought about in the 19th century. The interesting thing about that is that it is a question that I really formulated explicitly for the first time and began to face for the first time in my first semester of PhD work. Hmm. Yeah, I did not mention anything about this on my uh, application to PhD programs. I just showed up, as you, as you said, I, I went to Duke for my PhD work. In that first semester, I was doing some classes related to exegesis. I took a class on the Psalms with Professor Jeffrey Wainwright, and we were asking these questions about how is it that Christians read the Psalms. And it became a really pressing question for me. And then it worked in an amazing way, which was that it opened out into a set of questions that pushed me to rethink sort of everything from the ground up hmm. that I thought I knew about Christianity. And that is a really wonderful thing to have happen to you. So exegesis and theology and Christology and ecclesiology, all of those things begin to be implicated as you really think through what I would now call post-supersessionist mm-hmm. theological inquiry. But right, I say that also because if I were going to give one concrete bit of advice, it would it would be to encourage people as much as they can 
to not worry so much about formulating ahead of time exactly where they're going to <laughs> make some field changing contribution. Sure. But really, I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I feel like this is hopelessly trite, but I really, really believe it. The best way forward is to be in the moment, do your work, be open to the questions, and and just keep moving forward step by step um, mm-hmm. without being too too either too set in your ways in the past or too anxious for where you're headed. I really think that that is in that you know in that present presence to the to the present moment is where a lot of the best intellectual work happens. So mm-hmm. so right that all appeared for me in the course of my PhD work. I was kind of trying to organize my thoughts on that and move forward as quickly as I could. And then I, you know, concluded that degree by the the specific focus of my dissertation was, you can see several things drawn together in this dissertation. Uh, The specific (laughs) focus of my dissertation was the precise nature of the relationship between the old and the new in the thought of Aquinas and Calvin. (laughs) Hmm. So that, that is what I wrote on. And I, I, and interestingly enough, in the midst of my PhD work, I realized that on this very question, Aquinas and Calvin had answers that were similar enough and different enough to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Could you offer? Any, you mentioned before that you know this this insight and this encounter to to reflecting on Judaism that that sh- you know changed the way you did everything from the ground up. I don't know if that's a fair question, but. Would you have yeah. an example of how, you know, you were already getting deeply into Aquinas, of how that insight maybe reshaped your reading of Aquinas? Well, I can absolutely give one concrete example, which is the very specific question of what it is that Aquinas says about the status of the Jewish people, mm-hmm. qua Jewish people, after Christ. Mm-hmm. And I'll say one more thing specifically there. And this is a fine-grained detail, but it became very important to me. It's still something that I'm actually trying to work out right now in work that I'm doing right this very minute. Hmm. Aquinas, in his discussion of the practice of what you know, he comes to call the ceremonial law, so especially, for example, the obligation to circumcise one's sons or to eat kosher, etc., he argues that practice of the ceremonial law is now a mortal sin, hmm. is not to be done. But if you press further and ask when that became the case, you know, how was it that faithful Jews at the moment that Christ is born are practicing the Shemoy law, and now that's not just uh, useless, but in fact pernicious, Aquinas has a very interesting answer there. And he disagrees with some previous claims. So you can find earlier theologians arguing that it's it's very clear it's the work of Christ that changes that ontological status of the ceremonial law. It's the death and resurrection of Christ. And that is not Aquinas' answer. Hmm. I know. (laughs) He argues that there is an interim period after Christ's death and resurrection in which uh, observance of the ceremonial law isn't as accomplishing the same thing that it was before, because he believes it's anticipating Christ's arrival. Mm-hmm. But it was not—it was not a mortal sin. It was not deadly. It was not pernicious. And he argues that when that happens, is 
at the promulgation of the gospel. Hmm. So I could say a lot more about that, but it just became really interesting to me to note that for Aquinas, this profound change, profoundly theologically important change, had to do with things working their way out in the ongoing history mm-hmm. of humankind and their uh, interactions with each other and their reception. So do you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. the, the historical working out becomes profoundly important yeah. if you agree with him on that. Beyond the what we could say in a certain vein is the historical reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But beyond that, it's it's us working it out in certain ways, proclaiming and receiving or not receiving, et cetera, et cetera, that amounts to a, a kind of cataclysmic change, so to speak, mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the movement, again, from the old to the new. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, because it, it, what strikes me from that is this question that often comes up in a, a course I teach on salvation, and it and it's you know the the question of what do you do with the 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 person who is never preached to who never hears the gospel and so that that idea of i guess for Aquinas the sort of rippling out of the gospel shapes the understanding then of you know the the i guess the moral status of the ceremonial law that is exactly right yeah that's exactly right and for me that just as i said i feel like i'm still this is sort of what i feel like is the genius of aquinas people like me can read one sentence and then think about it for years and years. So I'm still trying to work out what that might mean. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I I wanted to pivot a bit because I I had a question that's very specific to you, but I'm, I'm very curious about, which is, you know, in the past year or so you decided to run for political office. You ran for, it was the state house in Rhode Island. It was exactly a seat in the state house in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm curious on a lot of levels, and I guess, I mean, the first question is, what was it that, that prompted you or, or inspired you to, to to do so? Right. It's a great question. You know, I have a spouse who's also a full, full-time <laughs> uh, teacher and theologian. We have four kids. Um, <laughs> so I've had a couple friends <laughs> say to me, I didn't want to say this to you exactly, but what are you thinking? Are you crazy? So, so two things I could say about that is I would just say that I think I'm at a moment in, this would be very autobiographical and personal for a moment, I think I'm at a moment in my life that is a little bit of a of a transition moment where I don't have little kids in my house anymore. We've definitely moved past that phase. That was a big, big part of my life for mm-hmm. a long time. And I'm kind of looking ahead, wondering, wondering what's next for me, wondering in a certain sense what work God has for me or what work I can do for the church and the world. And so it was, it was, it's definitely something I would never have thought about five years ago, but I just feel like I'm in a different moment Hmm. for myself. And then to give an answer that's really much more connected to some of the things that we're talking about, although it did not occur to me when I made the decision to run, I kind of, I came to a day where I said, okay, I'm going to do this jumping in with both feet. And it was a little bit after that, that as I was reflecting on it, I realized that it probably was not an accident, Hmm. that that happened after about 15 years of my spending a lot of time thinking about these questions that I've mentioned. What I didn't say explicitly is that thinking about the transition from the old to the new involves an awful lot of thought about law and 
the law and Mm. (laughs) immersion in Aquinas' discussion of that topic, which, as you may know, draws in multiple forms of law. So Mm -hmm. when Aquinas thinks about this, he is thinking about circumcision and other ceremonial, and he's thinking about the moral law and the Ten Commandments, and he draws into his discussion what is famously called the natural law, some Mm -hmm. tendency among human beings to to govern and to see the good and avoid the evil. And he concludes in that discussion, human law. So he is absolutely interested in thinking about traffic lights and (laughs) the Magna Carta, (laughs) and it's all part of the discussion. It's all in there. Very concrete human experiences. And I think part of what that, that did for me, again, over years of thinking about it, was to be honest, it kind of ennobled the account that I had of human law. Hmm. In the modern context, a lot of us are very immediately attempted to, uh, attempted to imagine law as a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. We have laws, you know, in other words, so that we don't murder each other in our mm-hmm. sleep. We just, we're just trying to restrain each other against our evil impulses or, you know, stoplights so that we don't all run into each other. But Aquinas has a much more positive view than that. He imagines, to put it in his terminology for a moment, he imagines human law as a participation in natural law. He imagines natural law as a participation in what he calls eternal law, which is really kind of God's own wisdom, Mm -hmm. so to speak, God's own prudential ordering of all things. And so, you know, that's just a different way. You're sitting on the school board and you're trying to make policies for the upcoming year. (laughs) Uh, You're involved in a very dignified (laughs) and, you know, profoundly important, profoundly beautiful work. Mm -hmm. And I now, as I look back, I think that really worked on me Mm. over that time. And I don't think it was strictly an accident that what I, the, you know, the, the position for which I was campaigning was a seat in the legislature, a seat making law. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, you know, probably other things too, but at least all that was part of it. That's fascinating. Be careful about theology. You don't know what it'll do to you in the end. No, I... It's it's not. I mean, I, I I know I'm not the first person to ask you that question, and I I you know I think it is in part because it's not an anticipated route in a certain sense. No, no, but, it's not. <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I think it. I mean, it highlights an insight you mentioned earlier, which is that you know there's a there's a capaciousness to theology in in the way that it can integrate. You know, you mentioned earlier literature and art and music and history, but also you know, politics and economics and, and you know, the, the good life questions now. And I, I suspect for a lot of us, certainly for myself, who went into theology, that that capaciousness and the, you know, unexpected directions it might go is part of the attraction. Yeah, it certainly is for me. That's right. It certainly is for me. I know in your campaign, because I, I was very curious about it, I was following it, and you, I mean, you were very committed to no negative campaigning, which a lot of people say, but, you know, I I think it was very clear that you actually lived up to, and your commitment to upholding your faith and and living your faith as a candidate and as a potential legislator. I'm wondering what maybe new insights you have about the experience of being a Catholic campaigning for office and both the the opportunities, the promises that that offers, but also the challenges and perils. Yeah, I think I do. 
I was very clear about that before I began to dive in because I, I had the sense even before that campaign began that the campaign itself would get pretty hectic and pretty stressful mm-hmm. and it would be very difficult to work out my principles in the midst of the thing. And that was right. I think that was right. It was difficult and stressful. And I myself certainly had the unnerving experience that I think a lot of people now have in different ways of watching uh, public narratives about me being created and Mm. then disseminated quite quickly and easily through social media. And even that I knew might happen. I think I just wasn't fully imagining how difficult that is (laughs) to watch that happen. And I spent a lot of time actually, it took a lot of energy to decide where it was best to respond where it was best to just turn my energies in more positive directions. Like talking with people over the course of my campaign, I knocked on 2,200 doors. <laughs> so <laughs> there was plenty of work to do that was not, didn't have anything to do with negative campaigning. You know, it was meeting people and talking with them. So I'm going to say that just in a, in a very immediate existential sense, that was harder than I expected. Mm. Harder just to live through it and also harder to make the decisions about where and how to respond to negative, I hesitate to use the word attack because that's so strong, but some of it was attacks and just, yeah, certain narratives that were spun about me and my campaign Mm -hmm. and then widely publicized. What do you do about that? So I will say this, again, just to kind of come back to a, a really explicitly theological source. I actually had spent some time before I even moved toward that campaign in thinking about this a little bit in the crazy world that we live in right now, where words are just, you know, poured back and forth and so often weaponized, frankly, about how to do that. And I had thought explicitly about a an icon that's not very well-known, hmm. but called the Silence of Christ. It's an icon that means to depict the moment that Jesus is silent before his accusers. Hmm. Now, you know, I think that that icon doesn't answer every question for you. And in fact, I certainly did not take that icon and my reflections on it to mean that I could never defend myself or should never defend myself. In fact, I did. Mm-hmm. I took Um, some time and effort and energy to, at several points, respond Mm -hmm. uh, pretty pretty firmly. But I think that icon served for me as as a profoundly theological moment and a place to to stop, to recall that, you know, the back and forth between myself and my uh, political opponent or between other people and the public for me, like everything else, is always filtered through my connection to Christ and the way in which I, I believe that I'm died and raised, raised again in mm-hmm. Christ. And it's always filtered through that. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to respond to um, something that's thrown at you through that lens, in that context, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And I think that helped a lot. Just in a very basic way, you know, if you you feel like you are holding your tongue in a in a really difficult way, well, turns out Jesus did too. We don't always <laughs> talk about that that moment in Jesus' ministry, but he really did too. Jesus held his tongue at a moment that was very hard to do it. So I would say that 
I do think that I did. I you haven't you, haven't, you very politely have not said this yet, Steve. But I lost my election, <laughs> so I just going to note that right now. <laughs> so I guess I guess I have to admit that I'm not sure that the strategy that I followed was really the best strategy to <laughs> win an election. <laughs> did you did you and have it, people trying to talk you out of your way of response? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I had somebody who, not long at all before the election, brought to me what they believed was very damning information about my opponent. Hmm. And what I chose to do was not even to investigate it, you know, to not even to follow up on mm-hmm. this claim. But I just felt like I'm not going to do that mm-hmm. a week before the election, even if I were to find that there was some true claim out there. But that was a little bit tempting, <laughs> yeah. to, you know, just to find out more. And and I certainly had people saying, just in various ways, you know, you've got to do this. You've got a, a few people. I think other people, that was a small number of people. Most people could see that, in a sense, an important part of what I was offering was a different way of mm. doing politics. And that if I let up on that, then I was no longer offering that. Mm-hmm. So they could see what was at stake in, yeah. in my just choosing to go that route. So, but I will say this also about that. I did walk away thinking, well, it turns out it's possible. You you can do it. I mean, I, what I'm trying to say is I can't guarantee you're going to win your election, mm-hmm. but, but you actually can do it. <laughs> you can just refuse to to hit back. And I'll say this too, I didn't really say it, but I also leaned a lot there on models of Christian nonviolence mm. as kind of as a as a as a framework to make sense of where am I doing what I mean to do and where am I not doing yeah. what I when I when I respond, that's a very general verb there. Where am I actually involving myself in inflicting harm on the other person? And where am I doing something more like self-defense? But I just because I, I found myself rethinking a lot of those classic arguments yeah. about when and how violence can be used. Because as I said, I believe that we absolutely are, in fact, currently using communication as in a weaponized and warlike way all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to reflect a little bit about what we're doing and why. Well, that's, I mean, that's fascinating to think about that, think about, you know, the nonviolence traditions as a way of thinking about a political campaign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But really helpful. Yeah. You know, you never want to, never want to reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. Yeah. So. No, it's such a wonderful yeah. insight. And on, on some level, I think a, a fairly new and unique one <laughs> uh, hmm. in some sense. Yeah. Well, I found it helpful. So. Yeah. I, I don't want you to have to commit to this, but do you think you'll run for public office again? <laughs> yeah, other people have asked that too. It's funny, I think I'm in a an interesting kind of middle space there. I did not, for example, come out of this campaign with a strong sense of, I'll be back, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people certainly reflected back to me something like that. You know, this is just your first run, and that it's actually very unusual to win office in your first run for public office. And especially some of the people, I mean, this is really... Again, I don't mean to sound trite, but honestly, it's humbling for me that people were really supportive of my campaign and said to me, you, you're representing me. I, you know, I, I, mm. I feel like you are somebody who could represent me. But, yeah, I guess I would just say that I came out of the campaign 
not only, I did feel a little bruised at the end, but I also just felt I had not been convinced that this is the pathway for me and the right thing to do. On the other hand, I also did not come out of the campaign saying, I will never, never <laughs> do that again. It doesn't matter what anybody says. <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't look to me like a, a, a likely way forward. But I've also realized that you never know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I figured out so far about life. You never know. So we'll just... Uh, We'll just wait and see what, okay. what's next. Thank you. So I, I like to close with some what I consider less serious questions. And so I have a couple of these for you. One is, what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? Well, probably my favorite liturgical song is one that's really most commonly described as a hymn. And that is, Be Thou My Vision, mm. which is you know, I'll just say quickly, it, it, it kind of connects for me in a lot of ways. It's actually a very ancient tune, an ancient Irish tune. And the lyrics also are uh, probably quite old, but it's one that I grew up singing mm. on Wednesday night prayer and hymn singing services at my Protestant church. It was also a hymn that we chose when I got married. So that uh, mm. means a lot to me. So I think I'd, I'd put that in the number one place. Good. Yeah. And then my other question for you is, of whom or what would you be the patron saint? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I'm going to say this. I, 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 I like to joke with my kids and say, when they're trying to get me to do one more thing, I often respond by saying, look, I can only do four things at <laughs> once. <laughs> so I think I'm going to be the patron saint of doing four things at once. <laughs> I have definitely not God willing. I have definitely not God willing. I become a saint and the patron saint of anything. That's what I'll do. <laughs> uh, I'll, you know, see, they, people say that Therese sends roses. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like graciously drop planners, weekly planners down to people's <laughs> path to let them know that I'm thinking of them. <laughs> I think, I think there's a lot of us who could pray for a little exactly. more, uh, like knowing your limits. <laughs> Exactly. And and letting others know your limits. (laughs) Yes, that's part of it. Yep, yep, yep. yep. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Ali. I really enjoyed this. Thank you again for the invitation. It was great. The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by me, Stephen Oakey. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. You should probably go check them out on Spotify. We have a new logo for the podcast, which you can see in your feed. Thanks to Ellen Stewart, whom we found through Fiverr.com, for her design. If you like the podcast so much you would like to support us with a few dollars, go over to Patreon.com slash DTPodcast. These pledges help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. Of course, if you want to know more about faith-seeking understanding in everyday life, head on over to our website, DailyTheology.org our Facebook page, Daily Theology, or our Twitter feed, at Daily Theo.